Hello and welcome to the Spectator Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and it's a very, very great pleasure for me this week to introduce Wendy Cope, um, whose new collection of poems um, has been a couple of years coming, but not so long as the previous one, and it's called Anecdotal Evidence. Welcome, Wendy. Thank you. Now, it's such a treat to have a poet in. It's always nice to get the chance to get to read something, so I'd like to start by asking you if there's a poem you could share with us to start with. We talk. Right, I'm going to start by reading a sonnet called Shakespeare at School. I wrote this after I'd, um, I'd been in Stratford and I'd um, happened to walk past the school where Shakespeare went, the King Edward VI school. They were having an open day, so I put my two pounds in a hat and I was taken up to see the old schoolroom where Shakespeare would have learned his Latin and so on. And I wrote this afterwards. <clears throat> Shakespeare at School. Forty boys on benches with their quills, six days a week through almost all the year. Long hours of Latin and relentless drills and repetition, all enforced by fear. I picture Shakespeare sitting near the back, indulging in a risky bit of fun by exercising his prodigious knack of thinking up an idiotic pun and whispering his gem to other boys, some of whom could not suppress their mirth, behaviour that unfailingly annoys any teacher anywhere on earth. The fun was over when the master spoke. Will Shakespeare come up here and share the joke? Thank you. Now, sharing jokes is one of the things you've been best known for as a poet. I mean, your, you know, your poems have always been very, very funny. Um, Some of them. Yes, I was going to say there's a lot of humour and wit in this book. But would you say, is it fair to say that there's a sort of, you know, the streak of melancholy and you've Seems Certainly. to have deepened in this collection. Certainly, although I don't think it's necessarily my most miserable book. I think my most miserable book, which was, is also my funniest, was my second book called Serious Concerns. And the most perceptive re- reviewer of that, the late Robert Nye, said this book is written out of deep despair. And I think he was right. I was going through a very, very difficult time in my life. And somehow writing poems about it made me feel better. And often, you know, I'd work my way through to seeing a funny side. And now I'm much happier now than I was then. But as you get older, inevitably, you know, you think a bit about old age and death and that's bound to get into your poems. Yeah. In fact, I mean, I think Betjeman and Larkin both started going on about that when they were about 29. So, I've, you know, in my case, it's perhaps more appropriate. Was it Serious Concerns or Making Coco that had that wonderful poem about, you know, bloody men are like bloody buses? Yeah, I think that is Serious Concerns, yes. And this book... Has which is one of the really warm and affirming things go through it. It's a it, it's full of poems which quite sort of rare in the poetic canon in some ways of married love. Yes, soppy bollocks about dad, as my stepson puts it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean it was meant to make me laugh. That was meant to make me laugh. Yeah, but there is quite a lot of that. Yes. Mm. One thing that I mean, you know, as you say, not all the poems are funny, and when you're funny, you're often being serious. Have you felt over your career that writing a formal verse, you know, verse that rhymes and scans and makes sense, as Bron Wall used to put it, and B, poems that are funny, has meant that it's harder for people to realise that actually, you know, you're writing poetry as seriously as anybody who writes. You know, I don't think readers have a problem with it. It's other poets that have a problem with it. Not all of them. But there is this idea that if you, you know, if you write rhyming verse, and particularly if you make jokes, that you're an author of light verse and therefore second rate. You know, that has always haunted me that problem 
I don't think that readers have the same problem at all. And, you know, I meet a lot of readers. I do readings all over the place and I meet them and they write to me. And it seems to me they, they don't have that problem. And that my, you know, it's not only my funny poems that are popular, even with my earlier books, the ones that readers responded to were often not funny ones. Things like Titch Miller, which came as a That's right, and the one about my my grandmother called Names that people like a lot. But, you know, what gave me respectability in the literary world was all those parodies and literary jokes in my first book. But those are not the ones that ordinary readers go for. I mean, they like different ones. (laughs) (laughs) What drew you to... I mean, because one of the things I think was obviously any poet, whether they're writing free verse or formal verse, and, you know, has to have an ear, and to write villanelles as well as you do, or to spoof, you know, as you do a Gilbert and Sullivan in this, you know, requires you to count these syllables and know where the stresses are exactly. Yes. I mean, was it that sort of puzzle value, that technical challenge, that drew you to write form of verse in the first place? Um, I think it's partly, the main reason is that I enjoy reading it. I enjoy reading formal verse not the only thing I enjoy reading but I mean if I'm judging a competition and I actually come across a proper sonnet or a villanelle I think oh good you know but I yes I think that the challenge it is fun it is fun you know it's a bit like doing a crossword puzzle once you've got going you don't want to stop until you've solved it so I do enjoy it I enjoy you know traditional forms both as a reader and as a writer and also I think I'm the kind of person who who looks for rules. I mean, it's a thing I have to fight, really. I'm quite an authoritarian personality. And so having these rules, and I'm writing in a form, and I think at least if I've, at least if I've got it technically right, I've got something right, you know? <laughs> <laughs> something to cling on to. How, do, I mean, how does a poem come to you? Will a form suggest itself, or will you start by saying, you know, I want to write a sonnet? Or will you have, say, a few syllables or a phrase that you'll... No, I don't start by saying I want to write a sonnet. I start by, I get an idea, not often enough, but an idea, it may just be a few words, or it may be something I've been thinking about and sort of talking to myself about, and I realise that could be a poem. And then it takes sometimes takes a bit of trial and error to see what kind of form it's going to be in. Sometimes it starts off in free verse, and then I realise it could be in a traditional form, Sometimes it's obvious to me, sometimes because the, the rhythm of the line you first thought of sometimes dictate, dictates the form of the poem. You, you've got a lovely line in it about, in one of the poems, actually about Shakespeare, you know, sort of walking around almost high-fiving himself for having come up with that yeah. couplet about the... Yeah, that, well, that's what I do, so I imagined if that's... Well, I imagined. <laughs> so I wondered if Shakespeare, you know, if I come up with something that I think is really good, I will be sort of congratulating myself on, on my walk to the bus stop. And uh, that's why I had that idea that, you know, I wonder if Shakespeare walked around his garden saying in his head the thing he'd just written and thinking, wow, that's good. I wondered if he did. So you've been, I mean, there's a whole sort of run of poems about Shakespeare. Yes. And there's, and it, it, I may be wrong, but I think this is the first time I've seen you writing about Shakespeare in verse. Yeah. It was commissioned, actually. I mean, they were commissioned. They were commissioned by the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust for the anniversary in 2016. And the weekend they celebrated the anniversary in Stratford, I was invited there and I read some of my poems on various occasions. It was great. It was really great to be there that weekend. And so, you know, I'm very grateful for that commission. Um, He gave me a nice long time, so I didn't have to sit down and write eight poems in a month. I just, now and again, I get another idea for a Shakespeare poem. Was Shakespeare, I mean, you know, almost any writer, you say, you know, was Shakespeare important to you? 
but you know did you get him young and get him immediately and was he something I that got him young there's, there's, a, there's a poem there's a, one of the Shakespeare poems is about the first time I saw a Shakespeare play which was Romeo and Juliet at the Old Vic on a school outing when I was 14 and I was just completely bowled over and as I say in the poem, I'm not sure, you know, was it the actors? I mean, I fancied a couple of the actors. Was it the story? Was it the language? I don't know. But I mean, actually went back in the school holidays with a friend and saw it three or four more times, that production. And then I went to see other things at the Old Vic. So I was very keen on the plays when I was quite young. But as a poet, it's the sonnets that have been much more important to me. I've learned such a lot and I love Shakespeare sonnets. Yes, you say there's a lovely sort of memoir poem where you say that your your worst marital row that's ever right. was over Shakespeare's sonnets. That's right, that's right, about whether or not they were autobiographical. And it was finally settled by Sir Stanley Wells when I was in Stratford. I said, Stanley, do you think the sonnets are autobiographical? Because, you know, I think I thought they were. My husband said, no, no, the academics tell you that's not true. And Stanley said, yes, I think some of them are. So I told my husband and he said does he I said Stanley says some of the students are autobiographical he said does he anyway um so that's why the poem says both of us were partly right yes you also say which I'm afraid I can't not pick up on that your second worst marital row was about a steak yeah do you really want me to tell you that story he didn't I'd been away I'd been away and I got home and he had this great big steak and I was hungry and he didn't want to give me any because he'd bought it for himself and he was looking forward to it. That's basically what it was oh, about. I might and not in, make a poem. In the <laughs> end, no, no, you wouldn't make a whole poem. But, I mean, in the end, he did give me some, but it sort of rankled on for days. <laughs> <laughs> but I bought it for myself. You said you'd have eaten. <laughs> <laughs> well, any Cope fans listening, send steak. Um, <laughs> another thing which, again, feels to me like it's something you haven't touched on much before, there's some sort of wisps of religious feeling in this book, I mean, slightly carefully ambivalent, but... I think you find it quite difficult to make sense of my religious position from that book because there's things like Lantern Carol, which was a commissioned carol, which, you know, you, it sounds as if it might well have been written by a believer. But I think the the poem that does actually sum up what my position is at the moment is the poem about Jesus. Well, that was the one that I yes. lit on because yes. it's it's got almost a sort of theological knot in it because yes. you sort of say, Jesus doesn't exist so whoever invented him deserves our praise if if he doesn't if he didn't if he doesn't exist whoever invented him was pretty wonderful yes and so is your i mean is your religious feeling in the sort of less poetic phrase of our old editor something that comes and goes like magic fm in the chilterns when i first moved to winchester and i started going to evensong to listen to the music and i just completely fell in love with the church of england which i am you know i was baptized and confirmed in the church of england but hearing the well the wonderful music and Cathedral Evensong I don't think I'd ever been to before and the Book of Common Prayer which I was familiar with from my childhood but it was just sort of wonderful that it was all still there and I think I am in love with the Church of England but I never, I didn't really quite manage to persuade myself that I was a believer but I still like going to church I like meeting clergy I'm very interested in the Church of England One character who's missing from this book and I miss him, and I'm sure lots of your oh, fans are like, where's Strugnall? <laughs> <laughs> Strugnall, for those who don't know, and I'm sure the, there's the odd one out there, is Wendy's sort of struggling, vainglorious, poetic alter ego. Invented poet, Invented um, poet, who was quite prominent in my first book, and I think made, might have made a couple of appearances in my second book, and then he's either died or he's given up. Somebody did try to commission a Strugnall poem from me, 
a few years after that book was published and I just couldn't do it. It just, you know, I just couldn't do it. It just made me feel too miserable. I just don't have the... Strugnall has lost the impulse to write poems. <laughs> <laughs> what, what did he represent for you? And what, why have you lost touch with him, do you think? It started as a joke. It started as a joke name to do a New Statesman competition. I'm trying to remember now, really. I suppose, I suppose part of the thing with Strugnall was that before I started meeting any poets, I sort of hero-worshipped them. And, you know, if you're a young woman and you hero-worship poets and then you start meeting a few, you're going to be disillusioned. And I think that Strugnall might have arisen partly out of that. But there's also some of me, because he's very bitter that he isn't published and recognised, you know. And, I mean, I was largely unpublished at the time when I wrote some of those poems. So there's a bit of me. But obviously the bit of Strugnall that's a drinker and a womaniser is just kind of things like exaggerated characteristics that I'd noticed in some of the male poets I was getting to know. played down characteristics. <laughs> <laughs> Who were the first poets you idolised? I mean, well, I'm not going to tell you the ones that might have inspired the character of Strugnall. Of course not, no, 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 no. But, I mean, when you started writing poetry, I'm assuming before you first published in, I guess, early middle age. I mean, you must have been... I was 40 when my work. first book came out. But I was, you know, I was publishing a bit before that in magazines and I was in this book called Poetry Introduction 5, which was published by Favour, which was me and five other poets. But I was 40 when my first book came out. The first poets, well, you know, at school, I was very keen on Keats, which is thoroughly appropriate for teenagers. I, mean, I still like Keats, but not as much as I did then. And I'm trying to think chronologically about the poets that I liked. I had a phase, I had a phase of being keen on E.E. E. Cummings, who I think is an entry-level poet. A lot of people are keen on E.E. E. Cummings when they first get interested in poetry. And then, I'm not, actually... Is, that, is, that, is entry-level poet a, a compliment or a mild deprecation? Well, he, well, I think that Cummings did write some lovely poems, but I began to realise there were people who were better, you know? I've always, I mean, I've always read Eliot. I mean, even when I was an undergraduate reading history and not really into poetry, I did read a bit of Eliot. Um, I, when I got seriously interested in poetry, I, there was a time when I read a lot of Ted Hughes and Sylvia Plath and Eliot. And my early poems, which are entirely joke-free, I mean, the juvenilia that wasn't published, they either sound like poor imitations of Eliot or they sound like poor imitations of Sylvia Plath. I think that's true of all people's Probably. teenage poetry. Probably. Although when I judged the National Poetry Competition, I noticed that a lot of the not-too-bad entries were imitations of Seamus Heaney at that time. That was 1986. And you thought those people might well move on, you know, to finding their own voice, because if they read Heaney and they were trying to write like Heaney, they were learning something. The bad ones didn't seem as if they'd ever read anything. Do you think, I mean, there seems to be that thing that some poets, you know, are very powerful, but their influence is a kind of dead end for people because you try and copy them and you, yeah. you, know, you won't learn. And I think people have said that about Yeats. I think... You know, Larkin's book, The North Ship, I think he had to work... I think it was probably Yeats's influence. He had to certainly work his way... You have to work your way through influences, and maybe some influences are more difficult than others. I mean, things have been said about the pervasive influence of W.H. Auden on my generation, although I can't see... You know, I can't see it's done James Fenton any harm, for example. No. (laughs) If you said your early poems were completely joke-free... When did you turn a corner in that? I was on. I, was, I went on some find. Arvon courses. Do you know about Arvon courses? Yeah, these are these short five-day courses, and it was great because I met other people who were interested in poetry, and you know the tutors are poets. And one evening, D. M. Thomas said, "Everybody, we're talking about Clary Hughes," and he said, "Everyone write a Clary Hugh," and I wrote about five. 
And he said, oh, you're really good at this, you know. So after that, I started writing more more humorous poems. I always had a sense of humour, and I always read comic verse, actually. Yes, I always did. But I didn't, until then, allow my sense of humour into my poems, and after that I did. Though actually, Clary Hughes are hard, aren't they? I think almost the only part of Alden that's really bad is Clary Hughes, but maybe you disagree. Uh, well, I don't know how hard they are. Actually, they're not nearly as hard as limericks, because with Clary Hughes, you don't have to worry about the metre. And with limericks, you often see poems that people think are limericks, but actually they're not because they haven't understood the metrical rules of limericks. <laughs> I'm very strict yeah. about things like that. <laughs> now, I, I should ask, it's a sort of semi-trivial question, but I'm completely transfixed by the detail that Andrew Motion let slip a couple of years ago. So, so when he wanted to write a poem, he'd take a lemsip so he felt slightly ill yes. and that that would put him in the, in the appropriate mood for writing a poem. Do you have any such No, I don't. Hacks? That's interesting. I mean... Yes, it is. <laughs> no, I don't um, take Lemsip or anything. I certainly don't drink. I don't think drinking helps. No, I just need a bit of time and space to sort of think and talk to myself, really. But once I've got an idea for a poem, I'm away. My problem is, and the reason why there's rather large gaps between my books, is that I don't get enough good ideas. But if I've got a good idea, I can usually make the poem work nowadays, not so much in the early days. Also, just because it was in the news recently, interested in your take, there was, a, you know, in the way of these things, quite a, a small but ferocious douche in the poetry world over a very savage review of, I think it was Holly McNish in PN Review, and it was a sort of sense of this old battle line being drawn up between, as it were, sort of page poets and the, so your younger generation of spoken word, you know, sort of rap or mm. performance poets. I was afraid you'd ask me about this. I've been thinking about this so much, I could probably talk about it for an hour, so stop you. I mean, basically, my sympathies are with Rebecca Watts, who wrote the article in PN Review, who says poetry is an art and there are things to learn, that you need to have some kind of relationship with the tradition and you need to have read a lot. I mean, I've always told my students that that's how you learn to write poetry. You have to read the poetry of the past and of the present day, and if you're not interested in reading poetry, forget it. This spoken word poetry and the sort of insta-poetry, like Rupi Kaur, who I yeah. think is not so much a spoken word poet, but a sort of Instagram poet. I heard a programme about Rupi Kaur on Sunday, and people obviously find it very helpful, so you can't sneer at it if people find it helpful. And my husband and I both thought of Patience Strong and how people found her helpful. And uh, you're not too young to remember Patience Strong. I'm you don't know what I'm talking dimly. about. No, she I sort do. of wrote inspirational poems yes, that no. the poets didn't think were any good. And Ursula Fanthorpe wrote a really interesting poem once about an old man she met when she was working in hospital who was reading Patience Strong and said, this is what keeps me going. And I think all poets are struck by that because you know we all sort of sneered at Patience Strong, but there's this old man who says, this is what keeps me going. But I think the thing about spoken word poetry is, I mean, I'm interested in poetry that works on the page. And I'm not really willing to say something's any good if I've just heard it once. And so I'm interested in whether, I mean, I think maybe some spoken word poets write stuff that does also work on the page. But if it's just written for performance and if it only works out loud in, on a performance, then it's a different art, really. I think a good enough performer could make the telephone directory sound quite fun, but it doesn't mean the telephone directory is a poem. That's a very good, concise way of putting it. I wonder, can I maybe ask you to... Give us another one. Um, okay. Having just said that poems need to work on the page, I'm asking you to perform one for listeners. But no, that's all they right. They can I mean, buy I do, a copy of the book. In I the do readings um, all the time, but although actually 
mostly I think poetry readings are the worst form of entertainment that's ever been invented. <laughs> but I like them. If it's a poet whose work I know, and you know, maybe some famous foreign poet comes to London, then I just want to go and see them and hear them. But hearing a lot of stuff that's completely new to me, I can't take it in. Just no, I can't either. But it is also fascinating how some people perform their work. I mean, you know, the sort of weird yes. sing-song of oh, yes. and and sometimes they explain yeah. it, and sometimes some poet that's really difficult, like Peter Porter, will exp- he would explain his work. And oh, right, okay, this is a little one called Men Talking. I wrote this. I was in a co- at a conference in America, and lunchtime, I'd been sitting at a table where everyone else were men. Anecdotes and jokes, on and on and on. If you're with several blokes, it's anecdotes and jokes. If you were to die of boredom there and then. They'd notice, by and by, if you were to die. But it could take a while. They're having so much fun. You neither speak nor smile. It could take a while. Wendy Cope, thank you very much. Thank you, Sam. Mm-hmm.